1: We've got
2: two Catharines. Two Catherines. And one of the Catharines. Uh, actually, my Catherine's been here before.
1: How about your Catherine? My Catherine's been here before. Well, We've got a, Catherine repeats.
2: A, the repeat of Catherine. Well, talking of... It's not exactly a repeat. I've got a trilogy or the end of a trilogy. And um, listeners may... Re- remember my interview with C.S. Pacat, When the first book came out, which was called Captive Prince, we now have the culmination of the saga. So, Catherine, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. How exhausting was it to complete a whole trilogy?
3: It has been a really long journey to get to the end point Um, and um, I think going in I was unprepared for just how technically demanding a third book in a trilogy can be um, because it was my first time to complete a trilogy so um, it was an eye-opening experience to kind of understand what other people have been dealing with when they've come to kind of their final work in their series.
2: But you would have also had all of these threads that have developed over the previous two books that had to be resolved. How mentally engaging was that to try and sort of juggle, manage all of those?
3: Um, I think the challenge when it comes to concluding a trilogy is to um, create a climax, a resolution that resolves but does not feel contrived. So I think, I mean, I suppose that that's the challenge of all narrative, which is that we want to, um, like, uh, defy expectations while still fulfilling them.
2: Mm. Well, talking about defying expectations, what we have here, the the book opens with a battle. There's a sense of betrayal. Okay, we're in the conventional mode so far. Damon, who's the heir of Akalos, has been seemingly abandoned by Laurent, the heir to the throne of Vere. However, this is not just a political intrigue. It's a sexual one as well, because... There is now a relationship going on between Damon and Laurent. How does this influence the dynamic?
3: There's been a very powerful build of relationship between these two, from rocky beginnings in Book one, where they were they were enemies clashing um, um through the development through Book two, where I guess they they moved into sort of like a grudging alliance, into friendship, into trust. Um, and now that trust is on the verge of being shattered at the beginning of book three um, when Laurent um, is right on the cusp of learning Damon's true identity, the man he's sworn to kill. <laughs> um, but, um, but I think constructing that character arc, it was important to me to make all of the... Um, that the characters are at the heart of the book and to make all of the... The, the more epic, heroic kind of battles and clash of kingdoms um, relate on a character level um, to kind of who these princes are and what it would mean for them for when their relationship was suddenly thrown into crisis.
2: But, I mean, there's that sexual tension as well. I mean, what you've got here and what we explored last time we spoke was almost a new genre of writing because the relationships are homosexual. Now, in a conventional sort of intrigue between political parties, you sort of have the expected outcomes, etc. of betrayal. The betrayal takes on a whole other level of meaning here if Laurent hasn't turned up to support Damon in battle. Um, how challenging was it to explore those concepts?
3: Um, I think... I think I did have a sense that I was writing into new space at times, And I think that that can be one of the most difficult things that you can do as a writer, which is to to try and do some work where um, very little has has kind of is there already as foundation for you to build on. Um so I suppose when it comes to like conventional romance arcs, we have an idea of what a happy ending looks like. Um, And it can be so specific that we have it almost down to a formula. Um, But when you're not working with a heterosexual dynamic, then maybe that formula has to change a little. Um, So it forces you to explore um, new, different, I think, exciting relationship models. Um, And um, I think also it it can add an air of of uncertainty and tension into the text that might not be there otherwise Well
2: this is the tension that that is actually one of the intriguing factors about this trilogy because when you if we go back into the past I mean the first book, Captive Prince Damon is a slave and he virtually has the the hide flayed from his back the skin flayed off him when uh, Laurent has him whipped so there's that beginning Um, and what's the nature of their relationship there?
3: Uh, yeah, exactly. And w- I mean, one of the things um, that having two protagonists of the same gender has allowed me to do is really explore issues of, um, of I guess, power struggle um, and intense issues of, of power imbalance um, because I've been free to do that outside of the, any kind of like um, pre existing um, like constructs of, of gender or like gender power dynamics.
2: Mm. And that then moves on in Prince's Gambit. What happens between the two of them there?
3: In Prince's Gambit, um, I suppose an unlikely trust has sprung up between our heroes. And um, Damon, who started off as a slave of Laurent, moves into a role of confidant and even captain. Um, and the two um, are forced, I think, to ally with one another, despite the fact that they come from opposite backgrounds. They're, they're almost Romeo and Juliet and they're from warring enemy kingdoms, enemy families.
2: But unlike Romeo and Juliet, they actually want to kill each other.
3: Right, they actually want to kill each other. Um, and um, and yet they're forced into this relationship of extreme proximity where they have to rely on one another in, um, in very
2: series of difficult situations. And just how extreme does this proximity become? <laughs> Can you uh, reveal all, shall we say? I
3: don't know if I can um, reveal all on this radio station. <laughs>
2: well, we, we can go um, so far and then, yes, but we're uh, starting to, to play on uh, sexual innuendo here, but then, okay the resolution is found in King's Rising um, the nature of that resolution, what, um, what did we have to sort of resolve, what was revealed, so to speak
3: I don't want to say too much about what was revealed, but I suppose what had to be resolved in King's Rising, um, throughout the series, the relationship that these characters have built, which which turns intensely romantic and, um, very, and sexual as well by the end of Princess Gambit, um, is built on a lie. It's built on a falsehood. Damon's been lying about his identity throughout the books. Um, so in King's Rising, the truth is revealed. Um, And the characters have to deal with the fallout of that. What does it mean that you've built a relationship with someone that is supposed to have been your enemy?
2: And the respective attitudes of their own peoples who are arch enemies.
3: Right, because um, their relationship has consequences politically and for their kingdoms as well.
2: Mm. So, yeah, without giving away the ending, so this is always (laughs) a challenge. It's not just a battle because in many ways... Um, their uh, relationship has to be preserved uh, as well as the kingdoms. So how challenging difficult was that to um, play on?
3: Um, it was very challenging. um I think w- um just to speak briefly, I guess, about the technicalities of of structuring a book, um, when you when you write a book, um you're not necessarily trying to write. Um like a, like, in a realistic way. So you're not um, doing a facsimile of reality where weird coincidence, coincidences can occur and um, you know, a stranger can walk in the door that you've never heard of before. Um, so you have to um, set up like a fabricated world where um, where threads will recur, where there aren't w- strange coincidences, where things feel like um, they're happening for a reason. Um, so when it came to um, constructing the climax, it was important to construct it so that um, that both the political, the king, the resolution of kingdoms, and the sexual romantic converged on the same moment um, in a way that f- I've, I feel, hopefully, felt felt inevitable. Um, and, um, and ho- yeah, hopefully provided a resolution for the series.
2: Well, f- finding a resolution, but as you say, breaking the convention, making it realistic, and the listener is going to have to read for themselves. Slightly deviating here then, uh, the book started as a blog, and you've got an amazing series of pages at the end uh, in your acknowledgements uh, to all the uh, email non-diplomes of, of the people. <laughs> what was going on there? Um...
3: I, re- uh, I really like that um, that the, the acknowledgements is something that a lot of people are picking up on. So A Captive Print started off its life as an online serial, and it ran as an online serial for about three years. Um, and during that time, it kind of grew in popularity from about six re- readers um, to tens of thousands of readers who would turn up every time that a chapter was posted. Um, and at the end of that time... Um, it moved from that space into kind of the publication space. I was pro- approached by an agent and we ended up selling the book.
2: What has that done then to the nature of the readership? Your initial readers, but now in hard form publishing conventional. Um, the nature of the readership, do you know anything about them and what, what's changed or developed there?
3: Um, The early readership of Captive Prince and the reason why I list that long list of names at the end of the acknowledgements was so important to me. They supported the the work um, when it was in its its earliest kind of incarnation um, and they've been here all along the whole journey, so they've been right to the end. Um, I think because the early readership were encountering the books online, um, they were a readership that was perhaps a little bit more familiar with the kind of um, very intense... Um, very uninhibited writing that can come out of the online space. Um, I think now that the book has achieved mainstream publication um, and um, there's, there's not necessarily anything exactly like it in the conventional publishing landscape, um, the a, a wider, more mainstream audience is really enjoying it, finding it, um, finding it intense and fresh, but um, is also a little bit Unsure of of what it is. I know that, for example, it's being published as a different genre in every country that it's being published in. Um, But
2: have you had to make any compromises now that it's gone into a hard
3: form? I think I haven't. It's not that I've had to make any compromises per se. I think um, like Penguin picked the book up because they really liked it as it was, so they gave me a lot of creative freedom with the third book. Um, I think what's been important for me is. to make sure that I keep in my mind that same sense of creative freedom that I felt when I was writing anonymously, where I I honestly felt that I could write anything because um, there was no no one... No, it felt as though no one was watching, and therefore I was free to do whatever I wanted. Um this time, I know this book is destined for commercial publication. So um that was the kind of pressure I had to set to one side and try and look back to that that original spark that I had.
2: So there are personal challenges, therefore. Yeah, involved absolutely. As well. yes. Well, unfortunately, we haven't got time necessarily to explore those. But just one quick question before we move on to the other, Catherine. What next? If this is the completion of a trilogy, what next? What genre? What form?
3: Um, so my next series is actually a young adult series. Um, I should say, as I say that, that Captive Prince is emphatically not young adult. <laughs> this is an adult series. <laughs> um, but um, the next series, I guess what it will have in common with Captive Prince is it's also set in a fantasy landscape. It has a very diverse cast, which is something that is very important to me as a writer. Um, and um, it also is has a lot of, like, quite intense character relationships as well.
2: Excellent. So, the third book in the trilogy, King's Rising by C.S. Pacat. Jan?
1: Well, I'm, I'm interested to know just what uh, sexual combina- combinations are going to be put in there as a young adult <laughs> book. Whew. OK. Well, do you watch the tennis? There's been lots on and even behind the scenes with the possible corruption involved with betting. That's not what Catherine Ledson's <laughs> book is about, Her book is called Grand Slam, but it isn't really a sport book either. Catherine, welcome back to 3CR. Now, how would you describe it? Espionage, crime, romance or humour? All of the above. Am I allowed to have that? (laughs) (laughs) Why not? The other Catherine had every genre (laughs) possible for (laughs) her.
0: Where does Grand Slam take place? It's set in Melbourne around the Australian Open Tennis. Now, you seem to know quite a bit about the Rod Laver area. Yes. You're, do they really have a tennis players' cafe? Yes, it's called the Players' Cafe. I inspected it thoroughly Ooh. a couple of years ago, actually, yes. Did you get into the change rooms? I did. I went on a public tour and the poor girl who took the tour with these uh, all the backpackers probably six people i grilled her i grilled her about every aspect of she was very suspicious i think she's going to call the police but i wanted to know which locker does the number one seed use and is it always that locker that kind of thing you know she was very concerned well we're going to move from rod laver tennis center
1: to um, the western australian coastline to espionage there's an oil rig explosion mm. Caused by a cyclone, yes. Perhaps sounds weird, and it's requiring the team to
0: investigate. Yes.
1: Who's the team? Oh
0: well, the team is led by the perfect Jack Jones, and uh, he he's uh, a, you know million a bit of a Batman type. You know, he's a, a wealthy guy, lives in Brighton, and he's a former special ops kind of guy and he's got these other people other other special ops people working for him to go around melbourne and just quietly deal with uh, baddies mm. so what has this got to do with the tennis well the um digger oil who who our hero our heroine works for is the major sponsor of the tennis and um Jack Jones is also, and his team of vigilantes, they're also involved with uh, Degat Oil Company, and uh, so they are on the case to try and find out um, who is blown up this oil rig because the public's outraged.
1: Absolutely, and uh, not only that, mm. the uh, Emilio Mendez, who is the number one yes. Spanish background, but Australian, yes. Aussie, 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 yes. all of this. Um, he's worried about his sponsorship he wants to give up his sponsorship he doesn't like having this sponsorship and all of this angst against him
0: he doesn't want the public to be angry with him and he wants to cut ties with Diga Oil who's the major sponsor I think I forgot to say that the major sponsor of the tennis Um, and so it's very worrying very worrying everyone's losing sleep so
1: Diga Oil Mm. they send one of their workers there to play Kate, yes. Emilio, and yes. That's And that brings in our heroine. Yes. And this is the third book about, see, we can
0: all do trilogies, can't we? Exactly. This is our <laughs> third book about Erica Jewell. It is, yes. Hapless heroine, Erica so Jewell. So what is her job? She is PR for Deeg Oil, and it's been her job to coordinate the sponsorship of the tennis um, on her boss's behalf, who takes all the credit for it but Erica's done the whole lot and yeah. she has to do anything to keep Emilio oh, yes. with the sponsorship make him happy whatever he wants whatever he yeah. wants yeah
1: well this is interesting isn't it <laughs> now
0: Emilio actually takes a fancy to um Erica yes she's a bit older than him and he has mother issues i think you know um, so he quite he i think he Falls in love with someone new every week And so this week it's Erica yeah.
1: And then now she's sort of made into this wag yeah. The wife and girlfriend <laughs> And well, look, how about we hear a little bit about this Because, you know, he he, he wants her around yes. And he even wants her
0: to pass the soap in the shower Yes, he does I'll read this little bit out Eric is... Um, Erica's waiting for Emilio in his hotel suite In this little scene And he's been very angry with her So he's uh, calling out, she hears him calling out from the bathroom, and we go from there. I cracked open the bedroom door, steam swirled from the bathroom. Teresa's not here, Emilio, just me. Ah, Mia Moore, bring me a new soap. I should just add that Emilio calls her Emily. Um, I don't really think I shouldn't. You have seen a naked man, no? Um, maybe you have not, he laughed. Come, Emily, I do not have time for the games. I walked across the bedroom and stood at the bathroom door, face angled to the ceiling, trying to see in my peripheral vision where the soap might be. Emilio sang in Spanish. He had quite a good voice. The vanity was to my left. There'd be soap somewhere there for sure. But of course behind the vanity was a mirror, mostly steamed over, except for one small patch around the PowerPoint, and in that patch I could see Emilio's gorgeous bottom. I stared at it, watching the muscles flex with his hair washing action. It was mesmerising, and I was so fixed on the vision that when he turned suddenly, I kept staring into the mirror. Ah, Corrida, you have found the soap, yes? Still it took me a few moments to divert my stare and continue the search for the soap the search that had not yet begun. A spare soap was there and I picked it up. I turned, keeping my gaze at eye level. Emilio smiled at me through the glass. He opened the shower door and leaned out of it. I held his eyes and fixed a small smile on my face. Here you are. Can you unwrap? It has paper. Oh yes, I looked down at the soap in my hand and beyond that my eyes snapped up and I unwrapped the soap without looking. Emilio reached out and stroked my cheek with a wet finger. I think we would both fit in the shower. He gave me a wink. I gritted my teeth, stretched my smile a little wider. Here's the soap. I handed it to him. As you can see, I am very forgiving, especially with you, my darling Emilita. He opened the door wider. Eyes north, Erica, eyes north. I'd better let you get ready. I looked down at my watch. Whoops, looked down. I turned, walked quickly from the bathroom and bedroom, fanning my face, and there, waiting with Teresa by the window, was Sharon Stone. Yes,
1: well, Sharon Stone is a a wonderful woman who's part of the team. She's um, super-duper, this Sharon Stone. She's very annoying. But Emilio sounds pretty good too, I must say. (laughs) So... um, but, but uh, uh, Erica, who's called Emily by uh, Amelia, it all makes sense in the book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, she's actually not that keen. Well, she, she's, she has to
0: fan oh, yes. away because she has another love interest. Yes, she does, yes. The perfect Jack Jones, referred to earlier, who, yes. you know, is just out of reach somehow. He's, he holds her at an, an emotional arm's length. Well, now, back to the tennis. Yes.
1: Okay, we have Emilio and we have the major, his major contestant, yes. Vladimir Vavilov. Yes. There are rumours that his family has connections with the Russian mafia. Yes. So what happens at the tennis luncheon?
0: Yes, well, Russians, these strange Russian people keep popping up everywhere. Even after the explosion at the oil rig, there Mm. were three Russian fishermen found floating in the debris. So it's very suspicious. But there is um, a heist at the tennis, at the lunch, the charity lunch, uh, where all kinds of things happen. People come running in with guns. Things are stolen, mm. including something very. The Erica's. lucky amulet mm. that, that, very, that he can't play with. Yes, yes. <gasps>
1: well, thankfully, Jack Jones and his team yes. are all around, and but Erica Jewel kind of has another life outside all of this daredevilness. She has a house that she's renovating in Richmond. Yes. So she has to go home and live (coughs) with her parents. Yes, well Jack Jones didn't offer a room at his house. No, but uh, she notices that, well her parents She has to do all those ordinary things like buy
0: prunes and Tim Tams. But why does she go to church with them? Well, I think she feels she needs to make amends with God because she's been doing a few bit of lying and she's a bit worried and she thinks God might be able to help her find Emilio's missing lucky charm. As well.
1: So we have all of this. Yeah. There are kidnappings, uh, stolen guns, death threats, shootings, arson, nearly being run over by a car and a train, and that's just ha- what happened to Erica. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there a relationship between all of these happenings and a past? case
0: Erica and Jack worked on. Yes, well Erica suspects that um, the very, very evil Shane McGann from the first book Rough Diamond, uh, he may be organising his mates to do a bit of payback. He's now in jail because of of Erica and Jack. Well we first met them uh, and we also learn about
1: how uh, Erica met Jack in the first book Rough Diamond. So this is the third book
0: and Is there a fourth for Erica? I think so. I think, actually, Jack will need to go to New York to to deal with the pain of his loss, you know, his parents and wife on September 11.
1: So, who said tennis was just a sport? Just as this book is more than just a crime story. (laughs) (laughs) Look, one question. There's a a book, a, a bit in here, about a popular fashion where... Uh, tennis oh, yes. um, tennis players wear wrists not on their wear watches Watch not on their
0: wrists but Ooh. on their knuckles. Yes, have you seen that in all the big posters of tennis players promoting Rolexes and all the posh brands? They wear them across their knuckles. The watches. It's very strange. Erica <gasps> notices this.
1: Yes,
0: she does, as as, as well as you may have, (laughs) (laughs) Catherine Ledson, who's uh, author
1: of um, Grand Slam. Uh, Both our Catherines were talking previously about a conference they were both at, the uh, Romance Writers Conference Mm. last year. Yes. I think uh, one Catherine was the guest speaker. Is that correct?
3: Um, I did a brief keynote uh, at the Romance Writers Conference. That's right.
1: And what do you think you learnt from
0: the romance writers, Catherine? Well, I learnt never, ever organise a romance conference <laughs> again because I'm still recovering from the work involved. Is that
2: because there was so much romance behind the oh, scenes, it was or very not?
0: romantic? It was uh, no, it was all business. Um, it's brilliant. The conference, romance writers conference, is an amazing forum for any writer, not just romance writers, uh, for for learning the craft and networking. That's fantastic, yeah. So how many people would have been at this conference? Over 300. Over 300 attend the core conference. Actually, we had to, had to cut the numbers off. I think it was 380 came to ours in Melbourne, but we could only take so many. We could have fitted a lot more in. <laughs> it's I mean, not, we could have yeah. a lot more wanted to come. Yeah. And
1: it's the background, you know, all, yeah. where all romances come from. It's You were mm. saying there were scientists. Oh.
0: And, yes, uh, uh, the, mostly women, the romance writers, but... Women who have given up their, their careers, um, you know, as vets and doctors and marine biologists to write romance novels. Well, you gave up your career too. Yes, in corporate world. yes. I'm so sad to <laughs> not be <being laughs> in the corporate world anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Um people.
3: I'm a geologist by training. <laughs> that's, that's but, um, I You've got to have rocks in your head, too. That's write right. Romance. You've got to be rocks in, have rocks in your head to be a writer, I think, <laughs> definitely. Um, I, my takeaway from the Romance Writers Conference was that this was just an unbelievable gathering of incredibly intelligent, um, motivated women. And um, when they got together, the things that they wanted to talk about were craft. Um, And, you know, there were guests from all over to teach aspects of craft um, and even really esoteric aspects of craft, there might be a fencing master to teach, like, the fine arts oh, of, of sword fighting because or there's, whatever.
2: Because there's a lot of discipline actually needed to write good romance.
3: Right, exactly, yeah. And the other thing, they wanted to talk craft and they wanted to talk business and um, just an unbelievable, yeah, um, talent pool level of experience and intelligence amongst these women.
2: Yeah. How did you choose the people to come along and speak?
0: Uh, well, we put the call out. A lot of people put their hand up and, and uh, you know, we, we kind of put it out to tender, you know, who, and people put their, their offerings in and, and we said yes or no to the the workshop offerings. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's great because you probably don't know this, David, but one of our
1: most um, read and uh, she stands alone, I think, in... Authors is a woman called Stephanie Lawrence. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Have you have you heard of her? I've
2: heard of her. I don't, she can't her is her.
1: enormous. Mm. Basically, selling romance mm. all through um, New York, bestseller mm. constantly up there, mm. and uh, she now has taken because romance used to just be on its own signature in in uh, books, in uh, print runs, but now she brought it out. You know she she. Is p- published Mainline, just as okay. CS Picat p- p- has brought her, her book out mm. Mainline. Right. There are you know publishers putting it under their
0: print rather than under their so you know, forgotten. It's, you know, yes, <laughs> moved away there. from the Mills and Boone kind of thing to, mm-hmm. you know, it's very mainstream now and the publishers want it because it's the biggest selling genre. But it's become
2: more involved and more developed and more complete. Mm. Uh, well, in, maybe in it always was, but it's just ah. being picked up now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good, yes. point. <laughs> Good
1: point. <laughs> now, I was speaking with Catherine Edson about her book Grand Slam Michael by Michael Joseph, a penguin. Friend. I
2: was talking to Catherine Bacatwell known as C.S. Picat, about her trilogy. Uh, The book was Kings Rising, but it's from the Captive Prince trilogy put out by Penguin.
1: And next week?
2: We've got a national Mm. living treasure.